The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. With another election day in the rearview mirror and the announcement that Joe Manchin will not seek re-election in 2024, our episode from the silo is a words matter where Norman Kavita talk about the Economy and Inflation Reduction Act, grounded in the words of Joe Manchin. Please enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. A lot of the dynamic here is uh, forces beyond Americans' control and beyond the president's control. And Dr. Kavita Patel. This should be a unicorn, Norm, a unicorn. Welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Kavita and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we're going to talk about a number of things, starting with the economy, moving to what could be a pretty dramatic move on the part of uh, Chuck Schumer, Joe Manchin, and Joe Biden that could alter the political dynamic and substance, including, of course, climate change. And then we'll have a final segment for our members about the Democrats and their strategy of targeting moderately placed Republicans and going to boost the more radical ones. So recent polling has made it clear the economy is going to be the number one issue heading into the election. Nothing particularly striking or different about that. But of course, we have big challenges. Yesterday, while announcing a pretty large 75 basis point increase in the Fed's main interest rate, here's how the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, described what's happening in the economy. Recent indicators of spending and production have softened. Growth in consumer spending has slowed significantly, in part reflecting lower real disposable income and tighter financial conditions. Activity in the housing sector has weakened, in part reflecting higher mortgage rates. And after a strong increase in the first quarter, business fixed investment also looks to have declined in the second quarter. Despite these developments, the labor market has remained extremely tight, with the unemployment rate near a 50-year low job vacancies near historical highs, and wage growth elevated. So, Kavita, we know we've got some issues out there. Some things are looking significantly better. Gas prices, uh, even driving around in D.C. this morning, I saw a couple of places where prices have dropped below that magic $4 mark. We know that other elements of the economy are going pretty well. But those interest rate increases and the continuing inflation, especially as we head towards the fall, are pretty worrisome. Yeah, 
not only are they pretty worrisome, but I'll give um, kind of to augment what Jerome Powell talked about. And, and I sadly, I had to get pretty smart on recessions, post-recession recovery 15, 16 years ago. And it feels like some of those lessons are coming back in. It's very interesting. So you, we have the Congressional Budget Office for listeners. They kind of traditionally do forecasting. They actually had a pre-pandemic forecast that had kind of trajectory for GDP growth, gross domestic product growth. And it's been off, obviously, the pandemic threw kind of a wrinkle into all of this, which is why Jerome Powell's comments really were predictable even from the beginning of the pandemic. But however, good news is that GDP growth had actually kind of picked up in terms of closing in on those CBOs pre-pandemic forecast, but then fell back and is about 2% below what the pre-pandemic forecast, or to put it another way, we are still just in terms of like what consumers are spending money on. We are not close to what we had been before the pandemic. So it's just another measure that kind of adds to Powell's comments. But then another interesting index that I think is helpful because it's, to your point, Norm, very relevant when you look at gas stations and you're going to the grocery store is prices. And the problem is actually looking at prices, the growth and the kind of GDP growth domestic product price index, and then kind of how that tracks compared to the GDP itself. And we still have a trajectory that is incredibly worrying where prices are increasing at an even faster rate with GDP not matching it. Or to put it another way, inflation is likely to get worse despite some of the shorter term measures that we saw that seem to be resulting in slightly lower prices. And if that doesn't confuse listeners, uh, I don't know what else can confuse you. It's taken me 15 years to try to unpack some of this all of it gets back to a problem because if you play these numbers out to where we might be in, oh, let's say November of 2022, we could be in real deep shit, as people like to say. The third thing that I've been following is labor productivity. I tend to track this because labor productivity gives us, a, even though we talk about employment a lot and the employment figures get a ton of attention as they should, we have to also look at labor productivity because as we have higher numbers of jobs, we try to look and make sure that each of those jobs are kind of highly productive. And productivity is a pretty conservative measure for understanding like the value of our employment. And we're still seeing declines in productivity. Here's the big bottom line. Employment's going up. Productivity's going down. GDP is still below what we wanted for both a correction or for kind of pre-pandemic stability. And that disconnect, this disconnect, higher employment, lower productivity, lower GDP than we think, is literally something that economists say that they've never seen before. And so that's where I think if I had to give Congress a little bit of a, hey, you know what's coming, that's what we need to prepare the public for and what Democrats certainly need to brace the public for so that it doesn't look like the Democrats failed on the economy but that they're taking proactive measures, acknowledging that like the economy is not going in the direction that we want it to. And that's very distinct and different from the president's press secretary's comments, which I thought were slightly obtuse and I think have obviously been criticized by both the left and the right around how like our economy is better than before, et cetera. It's a pretty disturbing set of trends. Uh, there are a couple of things that I would add. 
One is a lot of the dynamic here is uh, forces beyond Americans' control and beyond the president's control, and it's a global phenomenon we know. We know that a lot of it stems from the Russian invasion of Ukraine in two ways. It's caused a disruption in oil supplies, which is partly why we've seen gas prices go up and down and up and down as we have not seen a stabilization across many months of the supply of oil. I would add parenthetically, however, that in general, oil companies, instead of trying to help consumers, have taken advantage of this to make wildly excessive profits compared to the past. Because when prices have gone up, they make sure gas prices go right up. And when they come down, there's a long lag before the prices come down. But that's a problem. And as we head towards the fall, if the war in Ukraine continues, it's entirely possible, if not likely, that Russia will cut off gas and oil supplies to Europe as it gets into the colder season. And whether the Europeans, our allies in NATO, maintain their resolve is a question that's going to have an impact on the nature of that war, but also more broadly on these disruptions and oil prices. The second part of it, which is possibly changing a little bit for the better, is that Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. They supply grains all over the world. And the grains matter in the United States in part because if you don't have grain for feeding, then prices of meat go up and other things are affected as well. But now we have this deal. We'll see if it holds with Ukraine and Russia to open up the ports and let the grain out. Maybe that will bring some moderation in prices of food. The things that people are most concerned about because they see them every day or every week are, of course, the food prices when you go shopping and the gas prices when you go to the pump. Good news now, but if the things get worse in the fall, if that deal falls apart, if we see disruptions in oil supplies, the timing could be horrific. So what can you do? And I think you've raised a lot of the dilemmas here. You want, as growth becomes sluggish, to stimulate the economy to some degree, but stimulation of the economy means that you potentially worsen inflation. The rising interest rates are going to be another issue that will affect middle-class Americans. It's going to affect the housing market, although there, as interest rates rise, housing prices go down a little bit. That may make it easier for some people to buy houses, but at the same time, it's going to hurt those who are selling houses, and it's going to hurt the housing market more generally. So we've got a lot of big ifs out there, and whether the Fed handles this appropriately it's not entirely clear. It's not entirely clear that anybody knows exactly what to do. I've been looking at a lot of forecasts from the conference board, from Goldman Sachs and others who have every interest in being as honest as they can. They don't want to spin this. And they're a little more bullish than I would have expected in the sense that they do not expect a recession coming soon. And recession is technically defined as two straight quarters with negative growth. But growth is going to be down and people are feeling pain. And if that doesn't change, it's going to have an impact on uh, the elections in November. And these really are critical elections. I usually call family members and 
Texas and other parts of the country so that I'm not accused of, of just using our kind of liberal coastal views to inform some of this. And, and it's interesting kind of feedback has been, there is obviously like some hiring, you can't go anywhere without seeing kind of help wanted signs and hiring. So it does feel like employers still want to hire or at least hold on to workers, but that the demand for some of these jobs and just in general is seems to be compared to several quarters ago, declining. And that's obviously kind of adding to some of the dilemma that we will face in going back to like what could happen in November of 2022. But then it's also interesting, I don't know how much of a factor it is. People have made the comment to me that the labor market and just the way we're working, Norm, has changed so much. I know it's certainly true for myself, for you. Where has COVID significantly shift the way the labor market, whether we're less productive at home or whether just the fact that we're no longer kind of in traditional office spaces, does that change the dynamic of not just for middle-class workers, but think of all the spillover effects. We're no longer having events and we don't have catered staff and we don't have this. We're substituting it for different types of things that we ask in the labor force. Could that have an effect? And then third, it's it's this perception you know, there's a like a psychology to this. And even if things seem like they're improving, then you said the volatility of these prices, more predictability, even with just gas prices, that people still feel like something horrible. There's a sense of impending doom and what could be coming around the corner. And it's not COVID, it's not monkeypox. It's just, hey, things are getting tough and we're likely going to see tougher times. Therefore, people spend less. And you see housing markets that used to be really robust start to suddenly plateau and do- and decrease. And, and that psychology can drive, obviously, a lot of consumer behavior. And I certainly know that there are families who are, you know, they're foregoing vacations, they're changing behaviors, not because they don't necessarily have the cash on hand today. That's still a problem, but it's because they're trying to think about what could be happening six months from now. And it's, it's, it's something that I think, again, it's, I like to say it's a Katie Porter solution. Like, how can we get Democrats who acknowledge this, embrace it, talk about it, teach about it in a way where constituents understand some of this is beyond, not just beyond U.S., but it's complicated and it's going to take very bold solutions, i.e., we will need to have a majority in Congress. We will need to have a White House that has their eye on this kind of economic policy and that's not going to happen with the slate of candidates that are, you know, leading in some of these Senate races, congressional races, local races. So I think you've hit on a really Im- important point here, and that is people are feeling bad. An administration that crows about its successes is being, in a sense, tone deaf. They've got every reason to be proud of a lot of the very big things that have been done. But that's not going to help people. And you have to show that you are aware of the pain that people are facing, that you're fighting for them, and that you're doing what you can to get out of this. And I don't think they've done a particularly good job of that, especially when it comes to gas prices, as we've talked about before. But it takes us a little bit towards our next segment, because people have felt badly, not just because of the pain in their pocketbooks and the uncertainty and the disruptions with COVID. And we have to hope, of course, that monkeypox, new strains don't create an even bigger problem in the fall. But it's also this sense that Washington is broken and isn't working. And that's contributed to Biden's decline in approval, the sense that he doesn't have control over what's going on. And it's possible that as we see some of these 
potentially big successes coming in the next couple of weeks. We've already had one with the CHIP Act, which is going to have, I think, a big impact. And that could also ameliorate some of the supply chain problems a little bit further down the road. But as we get uh, towards the potential very significant inflation reduction act. I love anything with a great acronym. So let's just talk. uh, I'll just mention what the CHIPS bill is since uh, it's got a creative acronym that's incredibly helpful. Uh, Creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors bill. So it's about uh, almost 300 billion to speed up manufacturing of semiconductors in the U.S. And uh, I had no idea how much of how much of my life is dependent on semiconductors. Everything. It's not just televisions and computers. It's even just being able to monitor the supply chain to make sure there's milk on the shelves. We were behind the times in the United States. We were at such a disadvantage because of our lack of this technology and supply chains. And that's why we've had so many of the shortages. I think it'll be incredibly helpful in getting products back on shelves, electronics back to consumers in a timely fashion. And then hopefully kind of like diminishing some of what had been driving up some of the prices that then feed the inflation. And then my favorite, uh, my favorite body, the Senate, where I came from, they just went through and I'm going to read some words from Senator Joe Manchin, who was part of a team with Chuck Schumer and celebrating what they called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And let me just read a comment from Joe Manchin's statement as I was joking with you before we went live and with our producer, that I really hope Democrats figure out how to message because this is something that people can relate to. It's not as wonky and complicated as explaining the GDP to to everyone else. Tax fairness, Joe Manchin, tax fairness is vital to our nation's economic future. It is wrong that some of America's largest companies pay nothing in taxes while freely enjoying the benefits of our nation's military security, infrastructure, and rule of law. It is common sense that a domestic corporate minimum tax of 15% be applied only to billion-dollar companies or larger, ensuring that America's largest businesses are no longer able to operate for free in our economy. And that's uh, just something that I thought was interesting that they highlighted. It's a message that resonates with all Americans. Yes, how can billion-dollar companies get away with paying less taxes than I do when I make uh, a minimum wage? And so I think it was smart of Manchin to hone in on this. And But there are so many things in that Reduction Act that were pay-fors. In addition to the taxes on billionaire companies, he also has the carried interest loophole, which actually allowed for investment managers to take compensation as capital gains, so less tax rather than income. There are so, so many tax pieces, but I think what I take personal pride in, started it over 20 years ago and kept fighting was around um, prescription drug pricing reforms so that Medicare, not for all drugs, but Medicare can at least start to get into the business of drug price negotiation, particularly for the most expensive drugs, many of which treat some of the more common chronic conditions, including cancers. So there were a lot of um, the other part that was interesting for Words Matter listeners, Norm, was that Manchin actually also went out of his way in, in several comments to insist that uh, Biden's Build Back Better plan was dead and that this was the new way forward. I also think this was creative. You know, just when I want to like take a gut punch to Joe Manchin, he does something that I actually think was quite smart. Take on corporate people, you know, take on the billionaires that nobody can relate to. Make it very clear, this is not Build Back Better because nobody knows what that is and nobody actually cares. And this is the new way forward, even though the White House deserves a lot of credit because many of these concepts were things that the White House helped to push for. 
and also supported Senate Democrats for. So I think that, uh, and then on climate change, because there's been so many setbacks by the Supreme Court, by Manchin himself making comments about what he would not support. There were some decent climate change proposals in here. And uh, Brian Schatz, Senator from Hawaii, Democrat, his quote, by far the measures in the Inflation Reduction Act would be by far, quote, the biggest climate action in human history. Nearly $370 billion in tax incentives, grants, and other investments in clean energy, clean transportation, energy storage, home electrification, climate smart agriculture, clean manufacturing makes this a real climate bill. The planet is on fire. This is enormous progress. Let's get it done. And obviously, Biden immediately endorsed all of this and talked about his pleasant conversation with Schumer and Manchin. So here we go. We've got gaps. We're closing gaps, saving families money that would have been kind of subject to paying out of pocket for Affordable Care Act subsidies, prescription drugs, who can't relate to that issue, climate change, and kicking the taxes to corporate beasts and people who have been using loopholes. This should be a unicorn norm, a unicorn to message, to talk about. It's still got to go through a parliamentary hurdle. Hopefully, by the time people listen to this, we'll have gotten past it. And this can this can become law. I can't think of a better place to have from July to November to beat the band about how Democrats made a difference this this year. This is really interesting. Mitch McConnell had uh, basically tried to kill this in the crib by threatening to keep the Chips Act from moving forward until he believed that this was dead. Joe Manchin, of course, had said just a week or so ago, it's all dead. It's not done. They got chips through. This is an extremely complicated bill. It's 700 plus pages. They didn't just sit down yesterday and work this out. It sure seems as if they have really done a clever end run around Mitch McConnell to get to this point. And any end run around Mitch McConnell is something that I would applaud vigorously. At the same time, I've been critical in the past of Larry Summers, who's obviously a huge figure in the economic world, for publicly making it more difficult to get key Democratic priorities through, including saying just a couple of weeks ago, this is not the time for more government spending because of inflation. But yesterday, and today, he said, this is a good bill that will actually help with inflation. And that made a big difference in getting Manchin on board. And I think it will make a big difference in making this work because they're devoting a sizable portion of the revenues that they would get from this package to reducing deficits and debt, even as they move forward with some ambitious spending. Uh, I want to, you know, Norm, I want to say, though, McConnell did get some revenge. I don't, I don't think it'll work for him. It'll, it will backfire on him. He actually killed um, a, an important veterans bill that basically had almost unanimous support several months ago, last month even, the PACT Act, uh, promised to address, address Comprehensive Toxics Act, I think. I think I could be getting the acronym wrong, but basically it ensured benefits for veterans. Exposed, how could someone be against this? veterans exposed to toxins from burn pits during their time of military service. Who thinks that's something controversial? Yet McConnell made sure just as like a spite and like an act of revenge. That's classic McConnell, by the way. So yeah, they did an end run around McConnell, but somehow 
McConnell made it very clear that, like, you can try to do an end run around me and I'll come back to screw you. Among those who voted to kill this was uh, Joni Ernst, a veteran. I've been following the Twitter dialogue on this from veterans, including comments that there are veterans who will die prematurely because instead of spending time with their families, they fought to get this bill through. This is the pro-life party again, and I use that term in quotes, basically to get some spite for all of this, having more people die as a consequence. It's, it's beyond despicable. On the carried interest provision, I use this as a poster child over and over. When Barack Obama just mused that this was unfair, that multi-billionaires were paying lower tax rates than working people, Steve Schwartzman, a multi-billionaire hedge fund guy, likened eliminating the carried interest loophole to Hitler invading Poland. And that tells you how out of touch, unbelievably selfish, and outrageous this billionaire class is. And I think uh, Democrats need to run against that a little bit more uh, vigorously, even if some of those billionaires support them. But this is a big, big plus in this bill. The second thing is with these climate provisions. And of course, Joe Manchin is the coal magnet. He is very protective of fossil fuels. But he has now brokered a deal that Al Gore is ecstatic about. And that means that we're getting historic climate change provisions. And if this act goes through, all of the bad things we've said about Joe Manchin, we're going to have to at least temper them because this is pathbreaking. It's not done yet. And we can't get ahead of ourselves as we have too often with these negotiations. But if it happens, it's really quite remarkable. It is. It is. And that's a a good note to end on for our podcast this week. And hopefully we'll have even more good news coming out of uh, action after the parliamentarian and and other kind of Senate procedures make their way. And I look forward to hopefully repeating some of the good news that we can say is coming out of Congress. And just when it seems like there's despair, as well as reminding, valuable reminder, I, I think that packed I think that that PACT Act, having exactly what you said, Norm, reminding people that not only will lives be lost because of this hubris, but just showing those votes, Jody Ernst, I, I completely agree. Like, And that has to be where we come out with midterms, making the message clear, like this is what the Republican Party stands for. So on that note, I want to thank everyone for joining us, for our listeners. It would be incredibly helpful if you could rate and review and subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. We hope you can also share th- this episode with your friends on social media. And if you like this and even and want to get even more out of our conversation, become a member of the DSR Network and get a bonus segment where we follow up on last week's episode about Democrats engaging in Republican primaries and take it a step further as more of the outcome or spillover effects from Democrats investing in some of these Republican races has either arguably worked incredibly well or backfired on Democrats. But meanwhile, Words Matter, it's a production of the DSR Network. I want a great thanks to our incredible executive producer, Chris Cotnoir, the producer of our show, Grant Haver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on August the 5th. See you then. Welcome 
Welcome back to USR members. Here's a setup. It's a clip of a DCCC ad focused on John Gibbs, who is running to represent Michigan's third congressional district, the Western District. Let's just take a listen. And on the other side, Norm and I can discuss this entire new beast of Democrats investing in these races. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised to push that same conservative agenda in Congress, a hard line against immigrants at the border and so-called patriotic education in our schools. The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. So, Norm, this is not a new play. In fact, it's arguably one of the oldest plays in any handbook, by the way, not, not just Democrats, Republicans as well. We've seen plenty of investments, but it takes on a different color. And we're talking about Michigan's race. We've talked about Colorado, Maryland. In fact, I can canvas most of the country and find investments by either the Democratic Governors Association, the DCCC, for some of the tight Senate races, other Democratic committees, which have paid for ads that have in effect, been designed to really prop up some of the more radical right, Trump-endorsed, fringe lunatic candidates in an attempt to actually create a a dynamic that those candidates in Maryland were seeing it with the uh, Republican gubernatorial nominee, John Cox, up against the Democratic nominee, Wes Moore, who is favored to win in Michigan. We're talking also about, I think, John Gibbs, and how much controversy that drew from luminaries in Michigan, Adam Kinzinger, a number of re- representatives of the Democratic Party who have all been very critical of the deep triple C ad in particular. And here's what I will say. I will, I will make a comment that I do think this can backfire. We talked last week in our members segment about John O'Day in Colorado, who could give Michael Bennett a run for his money and was actually in some effect bolstered by Democrat support of the Republican candidate against O'Day in the primary a Trump-endorsed candidate. That strategy in general has worked where we've invested in propping up candidates. But we, what I will say is that listening to the Gibbs ad, it's all true. These, these, these comments about these candidates, their insane views of propping up January 6th, the belief that Donald Trump is still the rightful president, these things are all true. I think what's really kind of egregious to Democrats in this day and age of modern politics is that that's money that is being spent on just the money spent on these candidates is inflaming so much of what the Democratic Party feels like is the need for its base to kind of message around and what Democrats should stand for. Norm, I'm curious just kind of where you land in this. Or like all politics, is it local? And we have to let these races play out because in some cases we do need these targeted ads. What's your What's your opinion? So you could count me as unhappy and skeptical about these ads. I understand at one level that this is with a three to four vote margin in the House and the House chamber more likely than not to go Republican, that every seat matters. And so uh, if you take out, as they did with Adam Kinsinger and redistricting his ability to run again and to be in the House, or if you do whatever you can to maximize the possibilities of your candidates winning, I can understand that to some degree. But there are a couple of things that make me unhappy about this. One is 
we're in a different world now where tribalism reigns. And what that means is that you do not have that many voters who look discerningly at candidates and say, even though they're my party, I don't like them, they're not qualified for office, they're not morally suitable. There probably is no more unsuitable candidate for public office running today than Herschel Walker running for the Senate in Georgia. Not only is he a really bad person who has lied about the number of children he fathered out of wedlock, threatened his ex-wife with a knife and a gun, but he can't put two coherent sentences together. But what the polls show is that he's got 43% support right now in Georgia. Nominating extremists doesn't necessarily deeply reduce their chances of winning anymore the way it might have a couple of decades ago. And in Michigan, where you take a, uh, a member of the House, a Republican who voted to impeach Trump, who's one of the double handful of people who at least adhere to the Constitution and decide you want to take him out so that you have a more extreme candidate in a district that still leans Republican means that you're taking a party that's already batshit crazy and making it worse and making it harder to bring it back to some level of sanity. So I don't like that. You know, at the same time, the Democratic Governors Association spent $1.3 million in Maryland to try to encourage the nomination of Dan Cox, a Trumpist nutcase to run uh, for governor there. Now, I'm not sure that that money made the difference. I think the Maryland Republican Party, like so many others, Governor Larry Hogan notwithstanding, is almost in full cult Trumpist mode. But we have all of these difficult governor's races around the country that are absolutely critical, whether it's in Pennsylvania, where you have the runner-up or maybe the leading contestant for worst candidate, Mastriano, who now we learn was one of the key figures in this fake elector scheme, but who also was there on January 6th, may end up in the pokey before the election. And if Pennsylvania elects a Republican governor, the presidency is probably gone for Democrats in 2024 because the state legislature and the governor will make sure that there is no Democratic slate, even if the candidate wins the election going away. The governorship in Wisconsin, all across the country where these things are important, you got $1.3 million you just put down the drain that you could have used to help these other governors. Now, maybe they'll have a lot of money, but I just see this as a colossal waste of scarce resources. Yeah, and, and I, I'm glad you brought up Pennsylvania. Herschel Walker, violent thug would be a kind phrase for him. Mastriano, these are my concern about propping up, even if, let's say, and I, I called him John Cox, I apologize, D Dan Cox, let's, let's say this all works to the way that uh, polls and, and pundits have said in the state of Maryland, Westmore does seem like he's very well suited to win. If it doesn't hurt us now, Norm, it'll hurt again, because look at Maryland, since you and I know the state well, has always had an incredibly liberal state house. It's, it's just been a very state legislature that is prepared to try. And Hogan was kind of this, you know, moderate Republican, purplish kind of guy that 
would put the brakes on some of these things. So play this out. Westmore wins. Aruna Miller, also an incredibly capable lieutenant governor. They've got the governor's mansion. They've got the House. They've got the state legislature locked in. They start putting things through that look like there's errant spending, you know, Democrats, big spenders, big government, big spending. And what they've done is they've given the Dan Coxes even more legitimacy. And so it comes back to haunt us, even if the intended outcome is, yes, oh, look, Westmore won. That was the DGA dollars at work. What it's all it's done is kind of undermined what Westmore, I think, said it best. I've been a very longtime supporter of his to do anything in politics because I think he's just one of these incredibly unique individuals in history. And if people have not read some of his books, I highly recommend starting with a book that kind of made him famous, put him on the map, the other Westmore, highly recommend it. But Westmore himself tries to deflect when he gets asked this question. Obviously, he doesn't want to criticize the DGA. But what he has said is he said, I've got to appeal to those to Marylanders who wanted to vote for Dan Cox as well. And he's right. Like his message is the one that needs to resonate, like that, that the Democratic Party is not going to be the divide and conquer. It's going to be the unification party. We don't start to put that out. All we've done, Norm, is just completely captivated, animated, and it kind of expanded this group of fringe lunatics or people who are not so fringe, but are willing to vote for the fringe guy because they feel like nobody represents them right now. I want to give a, a, a double shout out to Wes Moore. My wife and I have been working with him and his team on uh, a, a really good and sound mental health policy. In a state, Maryland, which is ranked 50th out of 50 by the Treatment Advocacy Center on barriers to treatment for the seriously mentally ill segment of the population. And he's been extremely responsive. So I've got another strong reason, other than the fact that he is an extraordinary guy, we both do, for uh, uh, having him win. The implications, if some of these candidates win regardless, go beyond presidential election in 2024. What it means is even more draconian policies in many of these states when it comes to abortion, when it comes to contraception, when it comes to so many of the things where radical state legislatures will work with governors, governors who in the past we would have seen seen as reasonable if conservative, like Mike DeWine in Ohio, whether he hid his radicalism or is just weak and cowardly, is willing to sign all kinds of horrible things. And you put radicals in there, they're going to be leading the way, not even just doing it reluctantly. And this is not a good outcome, not a good outcome in the short run. It could be an even worse outcome in the long run. Democrats need to think hard. The Democrats who run the DCCC, the Congressional Campaign Committee, the Senatorial Campaign Committee, the Governor's Association, about where they're putting their resources. In the fall, you go wholeheartedly against these terrible, insurrectionist, treasonous, radical crazies who will destroy the fabric of our culture and society. But to encourage them to get nominations before that I don't think is a very good way to go. I also wonder, Norm, I, I, you you spend a lot of time kind of helping candidates I, yeah, prep for debates and, and things like that. I, I have to wonder, like, should we start to shift? We've just got a very different electorate than we did even four years ago. And, and how do we 
shift and help train our, our candidates to be able to respond to that. I think the Wes's of the world are rare. He probably could pivot on any topic and command any issue. It's it's that rare quality you see and only again, once in a lifetime. I saw it in Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. I actually saw it ironically, doesn't get enough credit for his policy chops, Jeb Bush, who just was a terrible politician, but probably one of the smartest policy people I had met because he just couldn't find a subject. He couldn't kind of try to take a command in. But we should probably start teaching our candidates, and that would be $1.3 million better spent in talking about who's investing in veterans, who's not, who's helping to make sure that you have a job that stays in this country, and who's not. I can't help but think that we need more of that and less of, here are all the reasons Dan Cox is an odious human being. We can come to that conclusion without the benefit of these ads by the DGA. So I couldn't agree with you more. I want to also, as we move towards conclusion, take on our uh, mainstream media on all of this. They have been reluctant to call out extremists, but they also, even as we get some of these truly crazy candidates, then go back to lauding people who on the surface don't look quite so crazy, but who are just as pernicious. And by that, I mean Ron DeSantis in Florida, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, who are basically the uh, Victor Orbans of American politics. Just the other day, we had DeSantis, just yesterday, talk about how teachers are actively trying to convince young children to change their gender, which is just an attempt to inflame a public against not just teachers, but against the trans community and others. They're using these tactics. The idea that people who are perfectly happy torturing 10-year-old victims of rape and who, as we saw with Matt Gates and others, voting against a bill to try and take on child sex trafficking and the traffickers themselves but who exploit this to bring hatred and violence against different elements of our community and a state in Florida, which now allows people with zero experience and without college degrees to become teachers of uh, first, second, and third graders, that you would say that these are reasonable people. Please, those of you covering these crazies in the community, in the political world, deal with them the way you should deal with them, or otherwise, we're going to end up with a very bad country. With that, I want to thank our members for being incredibly supportive. Thank you for joining us. And again, try to make sure that we can spread the word on Words Matter. Take it into your own living rooms and try to get conversations going. It's the only way we're going to make a difference, not just to come out and vote, but to come out in all forms, to talk about the hate, to talk about what's actually happening and giving it words because they matter. So on behalf of Norm, myself, and our producers, thank you. Till next time.